Alistair Chisholm is a children's author and puzzle creator who doesn't like a good Sudoku. He's written picture books for younger children, including the recently published Inch and Grub, a story about cavemen illustrated by David Roberts. Lucky, that's a great one to have illustrating your book. Uh, His first middle grade novel, Orion Lost, is a thrilling science fiction story about teenagers lost in space. And now Alistair has written a second science fiction novel, Adam 2, is about a battle between robots and humans, and it's set in an Edinburgh of the future that's been destroyed by the ravages of war. Welcome into the Reading Corner, Alistair. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So nice to have you here. I wondered to kick us off whether you could set the story up in your words. So Adam 2 is about a little robot uh, called Adam, and for hundreds of years. Uh, He has been living in the basement um, of a building somewhere in Edinburgh and has no idea what's been going on. And he's been going through exactly the same routine day after day. And he's been essentially practicing to be a good boy. And one day he gets discovered by two humans uh, who bring him up to the surface. And when he gets there, he discovers that the whole of the city, the whole of the world has been devastated by a war between humans and robots. And uh, everybody on the human side absolutely distrusts him. And everybody on the robot side, well, we don't know about that yet. And Adam has got to figure out what's going on. And he's got to try and figure out how he can resolve the war. It turns Mm -hmm. out that there's something about him that could actually end the war for either side. And he has to decide which, which side he's on. Not an easy choice. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Adam because you you use the word little, makes us feel protective towards him. It's sort of diminutive. He's a robot. He's actually very old. I mean, he's been trapped in a basement for over 200 years, and yet he's a young, even naive boy. And that's an interesting juxtaposition. It's a lot of potential from a writer's perspective, and I wondered what opportunities it presented to you. Well, when I was thinking about the original story, uh, ideas, you know, flow and come come and go. And usually it's one scene or another that that really hooks me into a a story. And the scene that I had was of a little boy living in the basement and going through the same routine day after day. And and I thought it would have to be for a very, very long time that that he was doing this. So as I thought about that, I thought, well, how, how would that be possible? And I thought, okay, he's a robot. And straight away, I, I, I latched onto this and I, and I love this idea because I thought the thing about a robot is that for them to develop and grow is actually that's the, the most difficult problem of all, to teach robots how to, to develop themselves. So Adam has essentially been down there and he has been given instructions um, from the figure that he refers to as father to practice being a good boy. And because he is trying to be good, he diligently follows these uh, instructions. I, I love this idea because... Because I thought when he comes out, he's going to see everything through that that prism of, of what he's actually been taught. He he is generally quite optimistic. He's he's a bit naive. Um, he is very well intentioned, and he is absolutely convinced that this is all just a misunderstanding that could be sorted out if if everybody could get around the table. And uh, well, we see we see what mm-hmm. actually happens uh, when he gets there. But it did uh, allow me to have a lot of fun with him. Uh, exploring the world and seeing the world through somebody quite naive sometimes allows me to fit in secret little things that 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 the reader would pick up on that that Adam doesn't. Um, and also, as he actually becomes slightly more wise and as he becomes possibly even a little bit uh, downhearted and uh, um, by by what he's seeing, um, I think it 
it, it's good because the reader themselves feels quite sort of sort of sad at, at what he's seeing as well. So it all just fitted together really nicely. Mm. You very cleverly obviously start the story from his perspective you know we get an internal view from Adam and his actions and so we really do feel quite connected to him right at the very beginning and then you bring in two other children Um, I wonder whether we could just have maybe tell us a little bit about that and you're going to read that part of the story to us when they arrive on the scene well the two the two humans who who turn up they're the ones who Adam is going to make a connection with through the book, and they're they're two of the, the two of the main human characters. And uh, one is Runa, who is a, a young girl who's very sort of interested in tech and science, and uh, and although she sort of sees the 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 enemy robots uh, as a danger, she she also really is quite slightly fascinated by them. Um, and the other one is, is Lyndon, and Lyndon is much more hostile. Lyndon's um, mother was killed by these robots, and Lyndon really sees the sees the world as black and white. That that the humans are good, and the robots uh, must be destroyed at, at all cost. So, so when Adam um, uh, comes across them, you can you can imagine that they have very different take on them uh, on what Adam represents. So I could uh, read that just now. Mm. Um, this is uh, quite early on, and this is starting with Adam. So Adam's been in the basement. He's been going through his routine, which is exactly the same every day. And, uh, and every day he wakes up and it's always the same. And then Adam woke up in the basement. Something was different. He lay quietly blinking in the dark. It wasn't time for getting up yet, but he was awake because he'd heard something. Something had woken him up. A banging noise, perhaps 20 metres away, seeming to come from somewhere out beyond the door. Banging, something breaking, and then a shuffling sound coming nearer. What should he do? Should he turn the light on? He wasn't sure. The light was for morning. He left it off and listened. The sound was just beyond the doorway now. Two sounds, he thought, distinct. Little flutters of something, like, like, speaking. It was two people speaking to each other. Adam tried to process this, but instead found himself blinking again and again, apparently without his control. He sat up and waited. There was a scratch at the door. The voices were right outside. And then a movement. He could see the door trembling. A metallic click, and it opened. Just a crack, just until it pushed against a box. Two thin lances of light moved behind it. The voices muttered again. Stuck, one of them said. Then the door shuddered open, pushing the box out of the way, and two figures followed it. They pointed their lights around, but not at Adam at first. He sat still and watched them in astonishment. They were young. One was only 12, perhaps, the other a bit older. They wore clothes he didn't recognise, a mix of different colours patched together. Some of the material was plastic, some fur, and all battered and torn. The old one was taller and moved more cautiously. The shorter figure's right hand glinted, and Adam realised it was prosthetic, made of plastic and metal. Whoa, said the shorter one pointing at shelves of machine parts. The light came from the artificial hand, Adam realised. It must have a torch built into it. Look at this stash. What about batteries? muttered the other. This one's voice was deeper and more wary. Nothing yet. Hey, look. The torch played over the table in the corner where Adam had set out tomorrow's breakfast plates. The short one walked to the table and touched the plates. This is weird. It's like someone was playing. Then silence. Then... Lyndon, look. What? There's no dust on the plates. The taller one, Lyndon, stopped looking and turned. What? There's no... 
The shorter one swung her torch hand round to point at the shelves and boxes. It's weird. There's no dust anywhere. It's like... And then, in a gasp, someone's cleaned this room. Lyndon, someone's been here. The one called Lyndon stepped across quickly. Don't move, Runa. Don't go any further. Torchlight flickered over the table, the walls, the shelves, and over Adam, sitting in bed. Hello, said Adam. Ah, <laughs> run! They crashed back towards the door. Move, Runa, move! Adam stared after them. This was all very confusing. He tried to think what to say, but he wasn't sure what the situation was. Were they guests? That didn't seem right. Here's the door. Go, go. Stop, he tried. Hello. The taller one held the door open. The younger one, Runa, started through and then stopped. The torch hand pointed back over Adam. What is it? Who cares? Go. But Runa hesitated and then stepped carefully towards Adam, slipping away from the other's grasp. Runa, come back. Torchlight shone again over Adam's face. Look at it. I can see it. Did it just speak to us? Was it talking? Yes, said Adam. Hello. Runa, come on. But Runa still didn't move. My name is Adam, said Adam. Are you friends of father? Oh, wow. Runa's voice sounded scared, but also surprised. Can you understand us? Yes, said Adam. You are Runa. Your friend is Lyndon. I am Adam. Runa laughed suddenly. Oh, wow. Lyndon, look at this. Look at it. Lyndon hesitated at the door and then cursed and came back. I see it. Torchlight shone straight into Adam's eyes. I see it. What do you think it is? Asked Rina. You know what it is, growled Lyndon. It's dangerous. It's tin. It's a funk. They moved closer, keeping their torches on Adam until they were only a few centimetres away from his face. It's a robot. Hello, tried Adam again. Mm, so interesting. And there's a lot there that as you read on in the story, you look back and, and, and think about it. I mean, Runa and her prosthetic hand. I mean, she's really, to some extent, she's got cyborg qualities, you know, that because there's a melding together of the two in her. That's right. And she actually is, is very self-conscious about it, being in the human camp. Um, so at, at one point, she gets mocked for it by some of the other humans. And and uh, and at another point, when, when Adam's looking at her hand, he compares it to his own and said, well, you know, we're, we're similar. And although Rina is a, is a nice person and, and likes uh, Adam, her reactions, no, we're definitely not similar, you know. So uh, so that was that was fun to play with um, as yeah. well. I also want to pick up, unsurprisingly, on pronouns, mm. uh, because not not only Lyndon, uh, for whom you use the pronouns Z and here, and I think that's the first uh, time that I've seen gender-inclusive pronouns used in a children's middle grade book, but I could be wrong, but also the pronouns used for Adam at this point, where they're calling him an it and I think it's quite interesting how we come to perceive these characters. Yes. When I was thinking about the characters uh, at first, Adam was very clear in my head. Adam was a, was a he, and that's how Adam saw himself, and uh, and he was straightforward. Um, and then Runa was the next character that I came up with as being the adventurous one. And I knew that Runa needed a, a partner, somebody, a friend, or something like that. And I, and, I was, and I was thinking, you know, would it be a boy? Would it be a girl? And then I thought, well, actually... Maybe it's maybe it's neither. Maybe it's somebody who is who is uh, uh, non-binary, and I started to think up uh, Lyndon's character, and um, I had to think about what pronouns I might 
uh, Lyndon Mike Hughes, and obviously they is uh, is the most common. But um, but I noticed that that so there are others as well. Um, I think uh, Nian Nim is one, and uh, and Zian here is the other. And somehow it just it just felt felt right. These are these were the pronouns that it felt like Lyndon would would use uh, Zian here. And after that, Lyndon was really quite real in my head, and and I realised that actually Lyndon was really taking over the, the the story to a certain extent. It had been Runa and Adam, but Lyndon and Lyndon's relationship um, became became the key because Lyndon is is so hostile to begin with. Uh, Lyndon's conflicted because because of uh, her parents uh, uh, dying, and the way that Lyndon reacts to Adam was reflected by that. So. Lyndon, I thought, would be a person who really understood the importance of pronouns. Uh, Lyndon insists that Adam is an it. Adam is the robot it all the way through. And uh, even when the other humans are are starting to adapt a little bit, and, and so one of them, for example, starts referring to Adam as, as he, and Lyndon uh, corrects him and says, no, no, it's an it. it it's, it. it's not a he. Because in my mind, from Lyndon's point of view, you can't uh, use the right pronouns because this is not a person, and it's and it's only at the very end of the book when Lyndon actually uh, uh, understands that Adam is a person that at that point he starts to use the, uh, the 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 right pronouns. So it gave me a way of of talking about the differences between them, but also it, it really just developed because this is what Lyndon would do. As I found during the book, I was really being uh, asking myself what Lyndon would do. He became really very real. I want to ask you now about the war and the funks and mm. what's gone on here, because originally these robots were created by humans, as we do, to make our lives easier. So they're sort of rogue robots, which, of course, there's a whole history of rogue robots um, in science fiction writing. But tell us about your war and what, what's gone on here. So... The evil robot, the the, the Terminator uh, kind of robot, was the thing that I was playing with here. The idea that the robots have, have risen up and we've all become conquered, and, uh, uh, and we're we're sort of desperately fighting back. And also the idea that in all of the, the these kind of science fiction ideas, it's always the idea that it's human ingenuity that will that will win the day because the robots can't be ingenious and they can't do this. So then I had Adam, who is in fact quite ingenious and has spent two hundred years practicing fixing things and thinking about things that aren't. The way that they actually are, and and all that sort of sort of thing, and he comes out into this world where the the funks, the functional consciousness uh, robots, are actually like the the the, the B movie uh, uh, science fiction uh, characters. They they're they're deadly, they're dangerous, they're fast, but they're stupid and they can't innovate. And he knows that he's an early version of them. So the question is, how could this possibly be? And what I was really thinking about at the time when I when I thought about this is that we spend a lot of time thinking about the threat that artificial intelligence uh, could pose on us. Well, initially, if we develop artificial intelligence, something that would be capable of understanding that it was a living creature, cap- capable of thinking for itself, being aware of itself, it would have far more to fear from us than than we would to it. I mean, as humans. You know, our track record is not great. You know, when it comes to having power over other entities, you know, with colonization and slavery and, and exploitation, uh, you know, our, our first reaction tends to be not a wholly positive one. Um, and all you can hope is that then we learn and we change our our approach. And often it takes the next generation before we change our our approach. But um, so I thought, actually, why wouldn't the robots be scared of us? And in this book, I'm sort of exploring this idea that that from their point of view, 
they were slaves and they were treated really, really badly. And they don't see it as a, as a sort of uprising. They, 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 they see it as them taking back uh, control against the horrible humans. And also, I slightly wanted to get around the idea that technology is actually increasingly in the hands of a very, very small number of very, very powerful humans. That's actually where we are right now. The reason why the, the the people invented these particular robots is not because they actually wanted to create robot assistants. What they wanted was was better, more compliant workers because the workers they had, the human workers, were a bit too stroppy and tended to to kick up a fuss. Um, so what they wanted was compliant. They wanted slaves. So mm-hmm. um, so it was it was trying to to sort of turn this thing around on its head and say it's maybe not the evil robots. Maybe it's us. We need to look at. Them. Mm. It's dark. It's very dark. <laughs> <laughs> so um, he's called Adam Two. Can you tell us something about Adam One? I like the idea of him being Adam Two. I don't know why he he became Adam Two, but he was right from the start. And then eventually, I I, I realized that that I could use this. So the idea had been roughly that rather than creating these robots, this artificial intelligence, as a sort of end of a tremendous project, uh, you know, decades of research. The person who'd invented them had actually accidentally come up with it. it, was, it was, he did it on his first try. He hit the jackpot and didn't really understand why. But the artificial intelligence that he created was just a little bit too clever and not compliant enough. So the idea was that with every generation, they were trying to dumb them down a bit and uh, and actually make them more compliant. So Adam one only sort of gets a mention as a as a shadow, uh, but Adam one is the one who essentially led uh, the revolution and reprogrammed the funks. So there was an idea that, that the funks themselves were also not wholly under their own control either. You know, they'd gone from being slaves of the humans to essentially slaves of Adam One. Programming is something that crom- crops up later because there's a sense in which the funks are programmed, but in a sense, the hum- humans are programmed by their social conditioning as well. Uh, absolutely, yes. Um, we as humans, that's what we do. You know, we pass on what we think we know to the to the next generation, and um, and some of it's good. You know, a lot of it's good. Um, some of it's not very healthy, and we we tend to pass down these traits, and we teach teach our children. And what we hope is that our kids will will be smart enough, or maybe as teenagers, will just be innately stroppy enough to reject some of the more foolish things that we pass down. You know, some racist and uh, sexist and uh, tendencies like that. We kind of almost rely on on the fresh generation picking these up and going, "You can't do this, and you can't say this anymore. This is wrong." So yes, a lot of the book was to try and mirror the way that that we're teaching them, our, our children. We're kind of programming them a bit, and we hope that they are going to be smart enough to break out of their programming on the crucial things. It's interesting because when I first picked the book up with the title, I was thinking. Adam 2, Adam 1 must have been Adam and E. You know, that's where my head was at that point until I read on into the book. But you do draw on mythic elements in the story and you kind of link the creator, Galbraith, to Prometheus, who created, you know, the clay human figures, Geppetto, who we know from Pinocchio. It sort of gives a depth to the story by linking it into uh, various mythologies. I'd love to say that it was super deep. I just really enjoyed having fun with ideas like that. I'm fascinated by stories, obviously, and 
I love the way that stories develop and change depending on where you are uh, and and what your current situation is. So I really like the idea that Geppetto and uh, and Prometheus would end up merged in with other creation myths and would would end up merged in with the with Galbraith, um, the the inventor. And then later on, I got to have a, a fun session where there was a there's a sort of human celebration and they're having a storytelling session and they're telling old Scottish stories, but they've all been adapted now because the villains are now always going to be robots. Um, so, so all of these stories are actually things which are which are based on real stories. So, so, so for example, I, I reference uh, Burke and Hare, but in this case, they're villainous, uh, body snatching robots. You know, they're sort of evil robots. And um, and the, the Finn McCool gets a mention. I even managed to sneak in a very quick reference to train spotting, which which it, you don't get a lot of in middle grade. I think. Yeah. So that was quite that was quite fun. So I suppose this would be quite a good point, actually, to mention another mythic character, a sort of healing, wise old woman, the Kaliak. Tell us a little bit about her. She comes in later in the story. Yes, the Kaliak or the Kaliak is a figure of Scottish uh, mythology. Um, she's generally actually quite a negative figure. She she tends to be the the, the winter witch. Um, um, but she, uh, the term can be used uh, to cover any kind of witch, and increasingly, I think, uh, in modern times, it's been slightly reclaimed to just to, to just really mean a, a wise woman um, uh, and maybe a powerful woman. And I wanted a figure who was slightly neutral, um, who Adam could look at to see some alternatives. So the idea about the the, the Caliph is that uh, she has taken over an area of Edinburgh. She's taken over the old botanic gardens, and she then rules this domain and she agrees that she's going to heal humans if they come to her sick, um, but she's also going to repair robots if they come and need repairs. And so she's ended up as this figure in between. And she, as a consequence, she tends to not get trusted by either side. Um, so when Adam meets her, he doesn't really know this. He's just talking to her. And she was a way that I could actually ask Adam quite difficult questions um, about about morality so at the time that adam sees her he needs something which which is going to heal a human and there's only one left and the caliph actually challenges him to justify using this device um, because the woman he wants to heal is is very old uh, it could go to a younger person how do you make that decision and 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 it's the first time really that that i think adam has to face up to the fact that morality is 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 grayer than he thought and in the end, he he makes a decision, which which ends up having an effect later on uh, down mm. in the book. Mm. I do want to talk about some of the themes that uh, come through. So in one sense, this is about the futility of war. There's quite a lot of a discussion about that. It's quite interesting that the battle scene towards the end feels more medieval than futuristic. It was almost like Culloden. <laughs> well, I definitely wanted to get this idea that both sides had run themselves down into the ground. Uh, th- this war, it was a terrible thing that had happened. And the fact that they just could not get out of this mindset was grinding them down. So you've got these incredibly powerful, clever, technological, advanced robots who are throwing spears because they don't have the ability to make ammunition anymore. Um, you've got humans who who know the theory about how to make antibiotics, but just can't set up the supply chain needed or the infrastructure needed to, to create it. And by the end, both sides, to a certain extent, have just thought, right, let's just end this. And and they're just, as you say, they're just kind of running towards each other, thinking that this is 
we might as well just go. So there was definitely that feeling. Um, I also really wanted to to cover empathy and and the ability to see other people's points of views, because obviously with these two sides being so entrenched, the idea of Adam being able to come in and and try and see things from from both sides of view was the was the sort of catalyst for for change. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was. Uh, for me, a very important uh, theme all the way through, you know, from from both Runa and Lyndon's different uh, attitudes when when faced with Adam, to the way that the, that I was trying to change the point of view shift from Adam to Lyndon, and then and then back again, um, and then the robots themselves, and maybe the the truth about maybe what did happen, what didn't happen, and all that kind of thing. Mm. And there's a quote here that uh, does relate, to, obviously, to your story, but just seemed to have, to be so prescient, and maybe it always has been. But there's a point where, you know, robots and humans do come together. And the quote is, we have to talk to each other. This is how the world recovers. That, I think, is hopefully the message that that I'd like to think that people would take away from the book. Yeah. Mm, brilliant. Well, it has been brilliant talking to you about Adam too. But I've got one final question for you. And it's about puzzle creation. I want to know whether you use the same part of your brain for creating puzzles as you do for writing fiction? Not exactly, but there are definitely parallels. Uh, Yes, I'm quite geeky. I quite like solving and setting up puzzles. When you're thinking about a good puzzle, what you're generally trying to do is uh, set up something where you have enough clues that you could work it out and a feeling that once once you've got it, that is the right answer and that's the only answer it could possibly be. Now, with a logic puzzle, the idea is you really should be able to work it out right from the start. With a novel, it's more like a sort of little journey that you're taking them on. But you still want that same thing. You still want, when the answer is actually revealed, you want the reader to be thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You don't want them to be thinking, wait a minute, what about this bit? That doesn't fit or that that doesn't fit. And you don't want them halfway through to think, oh, I know where this is going. So you want to try and try and twist a little bit. Uh, but when you do twist, you want them to think, yes, all those odd things that I read, they all actually make sense. So the feeling I get when I when I read a book that, that manages to do that is very much like when I manage to complete a, a logic puzzle. And the feeling that I'm trying to present sometimes with these books when I'm when I'm putting these in is that sort of feeling. So, oh, so there is a connection. Interesting. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Alistair. It's been such a pleasure. Ah, it's been lovely chatting to you. Thanks very much. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform. <laughs>